Please turn your Bibles back to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. I just want to get started with this question today. Why do we listen to God? Why do we listen to what God has to say? And, and by that I mean in the truth of the Scripture. Why do we listen to God and read His Word? But when we open our Bibles and read the Word of God, why should we trust it? Remember 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20-21 through 21 say, verse 20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we wouldn't want the Bible to be uh, just simply man's interpretation, or man's viewpoint, or man's will, or man's ideas. Because people are fallible. People err. They make mistakes. We're finite creatures. We're sinners. But God, God is infallible, inerrant. He makes no mistakes. He is infinite. He is without sin. God cannot lie. He is all righteous. He is our creator and father who loves us perfectly. He is over and above all things, distinct from all his creation, all else that exists in the universe. He alone is holy, holy, holy. And someone might say, well, sure, yeah, God is is all those things, but he doesn't know what it's like to live on this sin-crazy, sin-cursed world. He's up there and we're down here. So there's just things. And to that... We need to be reminded God is omnipresent. He is everywhere present all the time, and He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. God knows all things in all eternity. But on top of that, there's also Hebrews 4.15. Remember, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus took on flesh. God knows everything. Jesus knows and sympathizes with us in this life. He loves us. He is perfect in every way. He cannot lie. And then on top of that, uh, check out these other truths from the Word of God. 2 Timothy. Maybe we have this uh, memorized. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training. Think about those four words in succession. Teaching, and reproof, and correction, and training. Not just truth, but also helping us to see where we're off. Helping us to understand what it would look like to change. Helping us in the change. All of those things. That the man of God may be complete. Not lacking in anything. Equipped, it says, for every good work. Second Peter 1.3 says that his divine power has granted to us all 
things that pertain to life, life, and godliness. Uh, The Greek word there for all, by the way, means all, right? Not most. It says, through, we are given all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So we look at all of this and we see God is our rightful master. And he is infallible. God is inerrant. He is sufficient. So guess what his word is? If our rightful Lord and master, if God is our rightful Lord and master, his word must be authoritative. If God is inerrant, God's word is inerrant. If God is infallible, so is his word. And if our sufficient God says his word is sufficient to complete us, to equip us for all of life and godliness in our knowledge of him, then guess what? His word is sufficient. Even when Jesus talks about things like anxiety. Anxiety. And we might say, oh, anxiety. Oh, that's just so complex. It's too complex. And I'm not saying it isn't. It can be very complex. It can be. But God's word is sufficient. God is sufficient. Jesus, God the Son, says three times in our passage today, Matthew 6, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. And he's going to give us some illustrations, some examples, uh, and what to do instead to free ourselves from anxiety. So whether you struggle with anxiety or, or if you ever worry about anything. So we're not going to do a raise of hands there, but that's, that's all of us. The Bible has answers for us about this. Isn't that amazing? God knows our hearts. He knows his people. And he has given us answers for these things. And since God is the one who's teaching us today through his word, then, then guess what? This counseling that we receive today concerning anxiety is inerrant. It is infallible. It is authoritative. And it is sufficient. There is no other counseling resource in this world today that can say that. We have God's word. We have God's word. Uh, Turn to uh, Hebrews 5 just real quick. Hebrews 5, in our men's Bible study this week, was reminded of this passage. It's one where, like, we know it's there, but when we see it and read it, it kind of hits us all over again in a good way. But Hebrews 5, and we want to think about this as as we move forward in this passage this week and next. When we think that God's word doesn't say something about what we need, why do we think that way? And what is all the content that we're putting in that drives us to think this way or that way? Hebrews 5.11 says this, starting in verse 11, About this we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. 
the basic principles of the oracles of God. In this context, he's, he's speaking of their need uh, of knowledge of the gospel. Where do those oracles come from? The oracles just means the messages from God. Where do we have that? In the word of God. In the word of God. He says, you need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature. And then here's, here's a key for us here. For those who have their powers of discernment, so an ability to discern things correctly, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So when I hear, just for our, for our case today, as we look through this passage in Matthew 6, anxiety. When we think about anxiety, how do we learn to discern correctly what is true about anxiety and what is not true about anxiety? And, and as we go through this passage, I, I hope we understand and about any of these things, what we think about it is going to be informed by what we hear about it and what we read about it. That's going to teach us how to think about it. And if we're going to have great discernment in what is good and in what is wrong, or worded this way in this passage in Hebrews 5, good and evil, that understanding is going to come as we are trained by constant practice, studying the scriptures. That's a challenge to us, isn't it? Uh, we, and this isn't only written to the pastors. This is written to the whole group. All of us, students, fervent students of the Word of God, learning uh, by constant practice to be able to discern, what does God say about this? Because I know if God says it, it's true. Does that make sense? Uh, so we want to have that heart and that mind as we approach, uh, as we approach these things. Uh, I said this before. No other counseling resources in this world can say that it is inerrant, infallible, truly authoritative, and sufficient. Uh, and, I, and I want to say this before we go further. This is, a, this is a sermon, okay? Intended for the audience of the whole church. And so in this context, I won't be able to go into or to guess the specifics of every single person in every single situation here, all the different things we might worry about. I caught myself worrying about something even during the songs this morning. Oh, you, you were worrying. I probably wouldn't have thought about that last week, but this week I'm thinking about it, right? But please, please realize this, this is one of the reasons why God has given us the church. I, I'm not going to every Sunday hit on every single aspect and facet of every individual person's concerns. But know this, all of the members of First Baptist Church have covenanted together to run this race together as a family, in relationship with one another, bearing with one another in love. And it can be so easy, can it? Uh, the sermon's over, we sing that closing song, uh, someone in the row then turns around after, after we're dismissed, they turn around and they say, how you doing? And you say, fine, fine. Wonderful. Baby, blessed. I'm, I'm blessed. And you might even ask the same question back, turn it, how are you today? And they'll answer you the same way. 
we, we, we can exchange pleasantries and we move on. We hop in the car and we go. Please, please understand. And sometimes that's how it's going to be on Sunday morning. So it's not like if you do that today, you just have to feel guilty about it. I'm not saying that, okay? But please understand, church is so much more than that. So much more than that. We, we preach and believe the gospel here. No one but Jesus gets to be on a pedestal. No one but Jesus. Of all the places in the world, of all the people in the world who ought to understand, sympathize, love, and help each other through our struggles, who more or better than us? We should understand this. We know we've been rescued by our Savior. And and know this too. Your pastor is uh, certified to counsel by a group called the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. It's called ACBC. There's also a small group in our church, of people in our church, that are somewhere on a path, working and studying to become certified counselors uh, themselves. And please understand this too. You don't have to be certified to give a listening ear, to pray with, to share Scripture in a meaningful, truly helpful way. The Word of God is the Word of God. No matter whether you're certified by an outside organization or not, you have the Word of God and the Spirit. You have what you need. And with that, know this too. And then I'll finally get to the message, okay? But my hopes in preaching this message to you today and and next week when we go to part two, uh, beyond the obvious need of communicating what Jesus is saying in this passage concerning anxiety, worry, and how to change and grow. Uh, Beyond teaching and preaching that, I hope that we have a little Ephesians 4 action going on here where you can hear these messages as we study this passage together and see what God has to say about it. And then as a result, you also understand that you are now more equipped, more equipped to do the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. How amazing to to study the word, to learn what God has to say, to see victory in your own life, as, as you go along, not perfect, but you can see how God is working in you, and somebody comes to you and asks you for help. And you don't have this, oh, <laughs> go over there. That person, that feeling. You know what I'm talking about? But you, you know, you, you have the scripture. You love that person, and you're ready to help them. And every one of us, every one of us needs to be humble enough to ask for help when we need it. When we are struggling, including me. And be encouraged to keep learning, keep growing, so that when someone, when someone does come to you to ask for help, you'll be ready, willing, confident in the Scriptures to offer them biblical help, uh, to walk with them, to pray with them through their tough times. That's the kind of church we want to be, where we want to be growing. Okay, so we've been working our way passage by passage, week by week, through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And last week, in Matthew six nineteen through 24, we saw that one, 
We can only serve or obey one master. One master. And two, even though everyone wants to believe they've got a handle on the truth, not everyone does. Absolute truth exists. Absolute truth exists. Truth is not relative. And it's knowable. And then three, what we believe to be true informs our thinking and our values. So if we know the truth, we will come to treasure the treasures of heaven. We will value them that way. Uh, And if what we believe to be true is actually false, though we believe it to be true, we'll continue to treasure the treasures of earth. And those values will result in our actions. Now put another way, perhaps more simply, we could sum up last week's passage this way. We do what we do because we want what we want. And we want what we want because we think what we think. And our thinking, our values, our wants, and therefore our actions all stem from whom we serve. Is God my master? Is Jesus Christ my Lord? Or, biblically speaking, am I a slave to my sin? Or in my mind, remember, because we think things to be true that are not, in my mind, the way I see things, would I, would I like to think that I am my own master? And we know this too, Christians. Though God says that no one can pluck us out of his hand, from day to day, even from moment to moment, there are those times, right? where I'm doing my own thing. There's times when uh, what I want is to serve Christ. And there's this back and forth as we grow in sanctification and Christ-likeness. Uh, but this, this pattern, by the way, is found all over Scripture. I, I think of uh, even, even Peter. Think about Peter walking on the water. What happened? He looks to Jesus. Jesus says, come on out. He gets out and he walks on the water with Christ until when? He sees the waves. He sees the waters. He gets his eyes are off the master and onto these present troubles. And then what what does he do? Whoop! (laughs) Right? But then in that struggle, by God's grace, what does Peter remember? He's not going to save himself. And he says, Lord, save me! So we see, we see it all over Scripture. That, that passage, uh, Genesis 3, Genesis 4, here in Matthew 6, uh, John 15, Ephesians 4, James 1 and 4, and many other places as well. Uh, this pattern being hearing or learning, taking content in, and then thinking, and then wanting, and then doing, and then feeling. Feeling. Uh, we feel certain ways because of what other people do, for sure. Our feelings can be hurt or encouraged by the actions of others. But when we do wrong, or when we do right, we can also say, I feel how I feel because I did what I did. Uh, just real quick, turn back to Genesis 4. Genesis 4. Keep your, Matthew in Matthew, uh, keep your finger in Matthew 6. I promise we're going to get there. Keep your finger in Matthew 6, but turn real quick back to Genesis 4. Uh, this is a short but great example of our feelings being generated by our actions and also what happens when we let our feelings, which are a fruit of our actions, dictate 
direct what we do. Okay, so Genesis 4, starting in verse 1. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Cain, a worker of the ground. Cain was a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought, uh, but his bringing of an offering here was of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Somewhere along the line, somewhere along the line, God had established this, this offering of the firstborn of his flock as an acceptable offering, an acceptable sacrifice. And the Lord had regard uh, for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very, what does it say? Angry. He felt angry. And his face fell. His face fell. Cain didn't like the Lord's instruction. He wasn't going to serve God God's way. And so he thought he had a better plan. He wanted his work to be just as acceptable as a means of sacrifice. And so he did what he wanted to do and offered that wrong sacrifice. And when his sacrifice was rejected, he got angry. That's how he felt. You see that? So his face fell, his countenance. You know, when you're angry, you don't, ah. You're angry, your countenance falls, right? And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, if you do what I have said is right and true, Will you not be accepted? And this word for accepted in the Hebrew means lifted up. Will you not be lifted up? Remember, Cain's face had fallen. And now God says, if you do well, will you not be lifted up? You're angry, Cain. You could be joyful. And then God continues. And if you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. It's not for you. It's against you. But you must rule over it. Sin says, follow your feelings. Follow your feelings. And God says, you must rule over it. Your feelings are the fruit of actions. They don't get to rule over your thinking, your desires, And then further actions, which only makes our feelings grow more acute, more severe as we continue to chase them down that downward spiral. And and remember, what did Cain do? Did he submit to the Lord, confess, agree with God as to what the truth was, and therefore repent and, and find joy in obedience? Is that what Cain did? You say, well, no. He followed his feelings and killed his brother. And things just kept getting worse. Okay, so, so this, is, this is the pattern. I want what I want because I think what I think. I do what I do because I want what I want. I feel how I feel because I did what I did. Thinking, wanting, doing, and feeling. 
Now, finally, you're like, finally, Matthew 6, verse 25. This is why this is a two-part series, I guess, right? (laughs) There is an 11 o'clock service today. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. All this in mind, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. And just to, just to help us out here, when we think about the word anxiety, how do we usually say it? Do we say, like in a verb form, I am anxiousing? We don't ever say that, right? That would be a, that'd be bad grammar. No, instead we say, I am feeling anxious. So in our way of speaking today, we usually equate anxiety with, with feeling or emotion. And so if we're going to say this differently, just to make it uh, more of an action, we might say instead, do not worry. Do not worry. The Greek word, the Greek word here could be translated either way, so it doesn't, it doesn't change anything, but, but just to help us think through this, we usually think of worry as the action, anxiety as the feeling. Does that make sense? might feel like we're splitting hairs there, but we want to, we want to separate out what's the action and what is the feeling? So verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious or, or do not worry about your life. And this word for life implies all of it. Any of it or all of it. All of life. But then Jesus gives these examples. Of what you will eat. Or what you will drink. Nor about your body. What you will put on. It is life is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. We take it back in our context. We might ask, is my heart in this moment, is my heart caught up in treasuring the treasures of earth or am I treasuring the treasures of heaven? Where am I right now in this if I'm worrying? In verse 26, Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet, your heavenly Father, that's important there, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And this comedy says, O you of little faith. In these verses we have Three uh, lesser to greater or greater to lesser arguments. Meaning, if this little thing is true, then certainly this greater thing must be true. Or maybe uh, better stated this way, if God cares about this little thing, won't he care for the bigger things? Or the other way around. Greater to lesser or lesser to greater. So first, these birds. The birds. It's interesting. uh, First, just a little side note here. Jesus is stating that human life is more significant than the life of an animal. Okay? I'm just going to put that out there uh, because this is debated by some. God has not called us to steward... I'm sorry. God has called us to steward this world. 
So we don't just disregard them, right? God has called us to steward this world, to care for it for sure. But he does not regard animal life as being equal in value to, to human life, and so neither should we. But then also moving on, it's important for us to realize when Jesus says that birds don't sow the seed, birds don't uh, harvest the crop and store it in barns, he's implying that humans do. We do. And we should. We should do that. Jesus never says in, in this passage, stop working. Man, stop working. Don't worry, man. Don't worry. Just sit back, relax. It's all going to come. Jesus doesn't say that, okay? The Bible says, if a man refuses to work, let him not eat, right? Jesus never says in this passage, don't work hard. Don't take care of your clothes or, or anything like that. What he is saying is, don't worry about these things. We can plan, prepare, work, uh, save up for what we need. Those are good things to do. What we want to avoid is worrying about them, okay? Uh, So the cool thing about the lesser to greater argument concerning the birds is this. Uh, Jesus, Jesus, remember, is speaking to believers here. The Sermon on the Mount is being directed toward his disciples. And he refers to God as, Christians, your father. God is your father. Not just anybody's. Christian, yours. So Christians, not only are you more significant than the birds as a human being, But also, God is your father. God has not adopted the birds as his sons and daughters. That'd be kind of strange. They are beautiful creatures. They are God's creation. Their existence declares his handiwork. But he does not love them like he loves you. He loves you. Jesus came to die for you, not the birds. So, so who is God going to be concerned with first? The needs of his beloved children or the birds? You see? And if God's caring for the birds, he's already caring for you. The birds get leftovers, if you will. The second illustration is that of the lilies of the field. And these lilies refer to the wildflowers that would grow in and amongst the, the grass in the fields. The wild flowers being compared to clothing, uh, beautifying the fields. The fields, they're not just going to be boring green because it's just grass, right? But they're being accented by all of these beautiful colors. And he says, with all the wealth that Solomon had, all of it, all the money he could pour into making sure he had the finest clothing mankind could produce, Nothing he could ever wear, nothing his greatest servants could ever put out could compare to the intricate design and beauty, Jesus says, even of one of these flowers. And yet, as beautiful as they are, people go out in the field, they cut down the grass, they cut down the flowers with it, and when the grass and the flowers die and dry out, they would throw it in their ovens to heat up the oven to make bread. That's what they would do. That's what they would use it for. So that's what Jesus is referring to here about them being cut down and thrown into the oven. And if God would put his unparalleled creative and artistic genius 
on display to clothe grass that's just going to get cut down and burned in an oven for our food, no less. Surely, he's got his mind on the needs of his children. Does that make sense? And the third, the third lesser to greater, this one's a greater to lesser. I said lesser to greater or greater to lesser. This one is a definitely greater to lesser. Uh, this, this argument here, Jesus uses, is found in the end of verse 30, where he says, O you of little faith. And it might seem strange to put this statement together with the birds and the lilies of the field, but here's why I think this fits. I remember uh, that Jesus is speaking to his disciples, to followers of Christ, the children of God, which means they have put their faith in the coming Messiah who had come and was right there before them. And now think about what this means for us today. If you are here today and you are a redeemed follower of Jesus Christ, if that's you, that means that you've understood and confessed that you're a sinner, deserving of God's just wrath and eternal hell. You believe that Jesus Christ, God the Son, took on flesh, lived a sinless, perfect, righteous life, that he died on the cross as our substitute Christ suffering the wrath of God for our sin in our place once and for all. And you believe that by God's grace, when you confessed, when you repented of your sin, you turned to Jesus by faith, asking God to save you. He did. You believe that. And you passed from spiritual death to life. You became a new creation in Christ. And you believe that when your physical body dies... You're going to keep right on living, absent from the body, present with the Lord. You believe that Jesus is coming again, that there will be a resurrection, and that we will rule and reign with him and live eternally as joint heirs with Christ, with no more death, no more sickness, no more sin, just eternal joy and peace and happiness in the presence of God forever. Do you believe all that? Have you entrusted all of that to the goodness and sovereignty of God? Have you entrusted the eternal well-being of your soul to him? If you haven't, please do so today. What I just shared with you is the gospel. But if you've entrusted the eternal well-being of your soul to him, do you think think he's got our food and clothes covered? Me too. I mean, we're at church, right? Of course, yes. Of course he does. Ask me again when the, when the fridge is empty or when the washer dryer break down, right? Then we might have some different ideas. Now, the other part of this idea of, of having little faith has more to do with, with whom our faith has been placed in. Later on in Matthew 17, Jesus speaks of little faith again, but, but then says, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. I think that was an illustration, okay? There's no mountains here to move in Mount Pleasant anyway, so I think we're good there. The idea being, though, it's not the size of the faith that matters as much as who your faith is in. A little faith in God 
is far better than a lot of faith in oneself. And this gets tricky, and it's also uh, it's very sad. When you, when you see someone who is desperate to see their loved one healed or to see some sort of personal disaster in their life turned around, and they turn to uh, a spiritual leader, uh, a friend, or somebody like that, and, and, and often we see this kind of teaching in what's called the prosperity gospel, that prosperity gospel movement, or sometimes it's called uh, the word of faith movement. But it's, it's in more places than just that. Where they say, you want this to happen? If you had more faith, if you had more faith, it's not them, it's you. I'll pray with you, but if you had more faith, then your child would be healed. Or you wouldn't lose your job, or whatever it is the person is desperate to have. But if God's answers to prayer are contingent on the quantity and the quality of my faith, then who am I trusting in to make my prayers work? Me. And that's very little faith. That's very little faith. Because the one on whom that faith resides is little. Myself. We are instead, instead, When my faith is great because it rests on him who alone is worthy and truly great and good, then my faith will also result in my understanding that whatever it is that I so desperately want may not be what God knows to be best. And sometimes that doesn't make any sense to us in the here and now. But if my faith is in him, and I know who he is, I know what he's going to do is right. So that if God chooses to heal, blessed be the name of the Lord. And if God chooses not to heal, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's great faith. That's great faith. Now to fight against that, to fight against it, to not accept it, to demand things go your way, to worry about the various issues of life, that worry, no matter how hard or how long we stick to it, no matter how anxious we get, we know this, it doesn't fix anything. And it certainly doesn't add to our lifespan. It doesn't make things better in any way. Uh, Jesus said this in verse 27. If anything, if you ask a medical doctor, they'll tell you anxiety has cut some lives shorter. Never made them any longer. In verse 31, therefore, therefore, do not be anxious. There it is again. Do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat? Or or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Remember, these are just examples that Jesus is using. He says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Uh, The Gentiles here refers to those who were pagan. It's just referring to unbelievers at that time. And so they don't even ask God for these things. If anything, being pagans, they're praying and sacrificing and doing all these things to false gods. To ask for food and for clothing. And yet God still gives it to them. 
It's not like uh, Baal or Molech or Ishtar or any other false god actually pulled through and did anything for anyone. They were never real. God provided for them, for these unbelievers, in His common grace. Unmerited favor to all the people groups around the earth. And so again, if God is going to take care of people who are even praying to false gods, who deserve wrath and seem to be headed for judgment if they don't repent, if God is going to graciously provide for their basic physical needs, how much will he care for his own beloved children? Also, in contrast to the next verse, I think, I think we can also see here a comparison going on in this way. Uh, the Gentiles who do not know God, they do not know God, and they do not know who he is, or what he's capable of, what do they do? They worry. They worry. And that worry is rooted in their not knowing God. Worry is rooted in them not serving Him. It's rooted in not putting their faith in Him. Not seeking after Him, but only seeking after their own temporal, temporal needs. Treasuring the treasures of earth. Hence the creation, these man-made fertility gods, uh, rain gods, and the like. That's why they exist, because guys and gals were worried and they had to make something bigger than them to make this go. Therefore, we, knowing God, being his children, redeemed joint heirs with Christ, we don't have to be anxious. And now, as we get here, we're going to get ready to the end of, of part one here today, okay? Here's where we are now, what we see now. How? How? We might look through this passage today and say, oh, okay, all right. Jesus, you're right. can't disagree with Jesus. You are God, so I won't disagree with you. I should stop being anxious. Agreed. But how? What would repentance look like for this? And just to kind of get us started for next week, okay? Ephesians 4 tells us, put off the old man the old ways of thinking and wanting and doing before we knew Christ and to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, to have our thinking changed. And then to put on the new man, new thinking, new desires, new actions. So if we're putting off worry, what are we putting on? Verse 33. But seek first chase after the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Put off worry. Put on seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Remember, no one can serve two masters. If I'm really busy... If I'm really busy seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness, it would be super hard, right? To get caught up in the anxiety of seeking some other kingdom that doesn't ever seem to be quite right. So we're going to stop right there. We're calling this part one, okay? 
next Sunday, Lord willing, what I'd like to do is is focus our attention on this verse, verse 33 and, and 34. And then think through this process of repentance, tracing it through our thinking, our desires, and our actions in an effort uh, to get a good understanding for each of us of what victory over worry, victory over anxiety would look like. Okay? That's where we're headed next week. So let's go ahead and pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you uh, that because you are who you are, we can trust your word implicitly. And I pray that we would. Uh, There are so many things that uh, take up real estate in our heart, in our minds, in our way of thinking. So many uh, books and newspapers and websites and resources and podcasts and whatever all there is out there that informs the way we think. God, I pray that we would be uh, diligent students of your word, that we would know who you are and therefore value and trust your word above all else. And that, God, that this thinking would help us to understand uh, the gospel more and more. I do pray, Lord, that if there'd be someone here today who's never put their uh, faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation. And God, I pray for all of us that we would remember each day and grow in understanding how much the gospel continues to impact our thinking and our life uh, for eternity future. And Lord, I pray just as we would go here from here today, um, may we honor you, glorify you, seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. God, use us uh, to bring you glory today. And I thank you that this this promise that we have from Jesus, even in John 15, that seeking Seeking this and obeying you brings joy. So God, help us in this. Um, And thank you for giving us this time to be together today. And I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.